Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. So welcome to the CIS podcast. Pleasure today to, for, to meet Mosi Platt, a good friend, information security governance team lead, and um, we're going to have some conversations today about information security governance and, and get his perspective uh, on what we see today in the, in the field, his experiences through his um, amazing career. Um, so Mosi, welcome. How you doing? <laughs> That's a hell of an intro. I don't even know if I would call my career amazing, but I appreciate it. <laughs> so, Mosi, do you want to give us a little background uh, yourself, your experiences? Sure. So, I have been in information security for almost 19 years. I guess in May it'll be 19 years. Um, and I started out, you know, like most people, just doing some system administration, network administration work. Um, because that was the only skill I had was a Windows 2000 system administration certificate. So I did that, setting up some local area networks, small businesses. Uh, but the uh, guy who hired me, was he was running a boutique security consulting firm. And he, what he really needed help with was audits. And so once I you know, got enough experience under my belt, after a year or two, he had me start joining him doing the uh, IT audits. And so it started out just IT audits in support of uh, financial audits. And then, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley got passed. So it became SOX IT audits. Then in, uh, PCI was created. So then it became PCI audits. HIPAA came. It's HIPAA audits. And then uh, he got the brilliant idea. Uh, I give him credit. He had the foresight that uh, the next big thing is going to be ISO 27001 certification. As the economy becomes more global, um, there's not a lot of high adoption rate in the Americas for ISO 27001. And so there's going to be a load of work as these firms based in the Americas seek business you know, overseas where ISO 27001 is much more popular. And so I got into that in 2000, got introduced to it in 2008. It was probably 80 to 90 percent of my work from 2010 on. Perfect. Perfect. And that, I just want to point out that's where we met. Uh, that's, that's where right. we became engaged. It was uh, we had used the the firm uh, that Mosi was working at as a way to help establish, understand what ISO twenty seven thousand actually meant for the organization and build the program. Mosi was right there with us, so it was uh, so again uh, we became friends, and it's uh, just amazing to have you here on the podcast with us uh, to discuss something that you know again i want to get your perspective here on information security governance that's kind of the topic we'll run through um is as you look at it today and given your 19 year career you know what's the biggest issue that you're facing right now in information security governance so the biggest problem that i realized and i didn't realize until i left consulting um so i left consulting in 2018 to join a a cloud native company um that created a SaaS product uh, called Better Cloud. And when I was in consulting, I had maybe five to 10 clients that were just starting to, you know, 
they had workloads in the cloud or they were considering moving or starting to move workloads to the cloud. Um, nobody was cloud native at best. The few I had were hybrid at best. Um, but going to a cloud native company just made me realize that a cloud native company that um, followed agile development processes and was, you know, applying DevOps principles, everything that I thought I knew about compliance best practices were almost anti-patterns. If not everything, a lot of it were anti-patterns, right? Okay. And so, like, you know, when we were working together, right, doing a periodic quarterly review of change management or identity and access management, <laughs> that works in a slower, in a waterfall environment, right? But in an agile environment where we're pushing, in a DevOps environment where, you know, the company's pushing 10 changes to prod a day, right? And that's a slower company, right? right? Like it, 10 changes a day, that's 50 changes a week, that's 200 changes a month, right? At the quarter, we're looking at 600 changes. And even if I'm going to take a sampling approach, looking at 60 changes over a population of 600, like who's really getting assurance from that? Right. Um, right. And, when, you know, we get a, we issue a SOC 2 report. Let's say it comes out December 1st. By December 8th, again, there have been 50 changes to that product. <laughs> right. So how much assurance is that point in time report providing really? And so it's the yeah. biggest issue I think we face is the gap between best practices for DevOps and independent assurance. Right. Yep. And so um, I found this website in 2018 that spoke to it just spoke to my heart like this is they understand my struggle. It was a dearauditor.org. Um, OK. Right. And it just it, it's basically it's a it's an apology. It's a dear John letter from DevOps to compliance. Like, hey, we're sorry we left you. We're coming back for you. <laughs> Here's how we'll do better <laughs> in this relationship. <laughs> oh, that's right? awesome. Yeah. Nice. And so and, and they even came out with like a DevOps risk and control matrix saying these are the things we realize we need to do for compliance moving forward. But we're going to give you a warning. We're not going to sacrifice speed and delivery to do these sure. things. We're going to we're going to do both. Um, and so, like, you know, like continuous integration and continuous delivery and DevOps is great. But then on the audit side, we have point in time audits that that's an anti pattern. Right. Yep. Like DevOps and, or Agile is breaking things down in these small manageable units of work. But on the audit side, we have these large audit scopes like that's an anti pattern, right? right. Um, short feedback cycles of days or you know weeks at, at the longest in, a, in an agile method versus these long reporting durations of months for a SOC 2 report, right? Or an yeah. ISO certification like th they're anti patterns. And so we have to get to this a more we have to. Agile and DevOps are uh, applying continuous work cycles and we need to get into continuous cycles of assurance. Sure. No, absolutely. I, you know, I was going to go to the point of, you know, when we think about value generation within those processes, and then we're also looking at the audit component to provide value and assurances, right? Those are not the same value propositions at all because of, as you mentioned, these anti-patterns are, are really then causing this issue of I'm generating value on a daily basis over this side. And here, you know, it's once a year, maybe there's my value generation and it shows you literally, you know, in that particular point in time, oh, we were great. You know, what happened to the other 365 days? You know, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It, it's, right. it's not allowing us to be, uh, and I think the, the word is agile enough in order to allow, and it, it's another comment that I'll have uh, momentarily, but it doesn't give us that perspective. It doesn't give us the insight. 
And so we lose kind of track of where we are because we're always looking to. And this is, you know, this I wanted to reflect on this with you is some of the work that we did. I'm always looking to that audit date as being like, you know, this drop dead date of when things have to be ready to go, right? Now I've got into my compliance versus my security decision. And so I'm looking at compliance as being this emphasis where really, and, and this is after the work we did together was that the big eye opener is you've, you kind of missed the point. It's not working towards compliance. You're working security to fulfill that one day. And that one day shouldn't really be, you know, it's obviously sampling and things of that nature, but it's, it shouldn't be, you know, a shock to the system that you're doing all this preparation. That should have been day one and it's the same elements that you build. Do you feel that way? Um, mostly I do. I think, um, it's one of the things that it's one of my pet peeves is when, you know, let you let the tail wag the dog, right? Like we don't do compliance to be secure, right? That that's not the reason we, we do, we, we do compliance because we need to show that we are managing risk in a secure way. Right. Right. And, it, and, and it gets lost when the focus becomes the audit instead of on the business objective. Like, cause you only need to pass the audit to achieve some business objectives. So what is the business objective? And is your security program aligned with that? That's where the focus needs to be. If your security and audit objectives are aligned, compliance is easy. It's when they get misaligned that you have the problem that, that you talked about. And a lot of companies have those problems. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it, it, it's, I guess, and, and so one of the questions I was going to ask was, um, and I think we've kind of just answered the question is, have we reached the point, and I, I don't think that we have, but let's comment on it anyway, where we've we've separated compliance and security into these, you know, the past was, you know, security is just this, we do it every day, but compliance is the special time of year that we have to, you know, everything's polished Here's a beautiful report. Here's everything you need in order to, you know, fulfill this requirement of being certified or getting an attestation of your capabilities. Um, you know, it's, have we resolved that? Or are we still in conflict in terms of we've gone from, I love the analogy, the, the tail wagging the dog. And I think, you know, I think we've kind of answered that we're still there. Where do you think or what do you think makes the most sense to get us out of that pattern, as it were, that's leading us right. to that behavior. So I think um, there's a, a there's a great podcast, Security Compliance Weekly, where the first thing to ask every guest is security or compliance, <laughs> which side do you fall on? <laughs> right. And it's about this that same question. Right. <clears throat> and everybody takes the bait or not say everybody. Most people take the bait and they choose a side. I think I've only heard one where the person said both or maybe there may be one or two where the, you know, the answer was both. I don't think they're enemies. Um, and I think what I think the problem is, is that we're not looking at it with enough nuance and it doesn't require a ton more nuance, but just a little bit. Right. Because the issue isn't compliance doesn't equal security. The issue is bad compliance does not equal security. Right. <clears throat> because, I mean, you know, like the thing that was so impressive about you when we were working together is you have put together your own compliance matrix of mapping all of these standards across I don't even know how many columns in the spreadsheet. I think I'm pretty sure it was up to C something like CW, CZ, something like that. Like it was crazy <laughs> that yep. you had manually mapped all these standards. Yep. And so, but all of these standards say a similar thing. None of them say you have to do it this way. 
They say right. these are the requirements and from these requirements, you have to apply them based on what your risk is. Yep. Right. Yep. And so <clears throat> good compliance equals good security when it's to, like to me, the difference between security and compliance is not a difference. It's a compliment. Risk based compliance gives security value. Right. Because security for security's sake. OK, it sounds good, but it doesn't have any value without the context that that risk based compliance gives it right within what is the business need and and that's what that risk-based compliance gives you it says like this is what the business is trying to achieve which leads to these requirements and these are the risks that can prevent the business from achieving those requirements and how do we make sure we are managing those risks in a way that meets the requirements of the business that's what gives security value outside of that then you're stuck with that other idea that security gets labeled with of being a cost center and things like that only protecting value, but you can't tell how much value is protected because you don't have the proper context, which is something I heard you talk about in the first CIS podcast, right? You, you kept stressing context over and over again with Tony. And I think that is that is the key. Yep. Yep. No, completely agree. And again, we, a lot of, um, you know, I mean, over the years, we've had some great conversations that's led to that type of thinking, right? You know, um, the influence of your perspective coming in to the organization, because uh, I'll give a context for the audiences. My focus, you know, I was doing all these mappings, manually doing these things, and it was all with the end goal of getting that certificate. That was that was the reason. And uh, you came in, and then it was, you know, are you really? Is that really what you're trying to do? You should be. Let's flip the script, as it were, in a little bit, and look at it this way. Where's your risk? Okay, so what are we going to do to mitigate that risk with these controls that you've just labeled? And it was, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was that realization that allowed us then to, okay, it's a different conversation that we're having because the organization's perspective was in order to do business, we need this piece of paper, right? In order for us to allow us to do that. And we then realigned and there was a few people we had to... Uh, to get on board, um, <laughs> let me put that politically, and we did, uh, you know, and it ended up being really successful. There was a great plan. We had the ability to uh, identify risk, allow controls to flourish in order to mitigate, and then ended up with a very, very nice control and, com uh, well, compliance program, control program in place. So, yeah, I mean, that was, it was great to go through that because when we saw it, and again, this was, you know, my reflection on the work that we'd done. And then when the, you know, the audit team comes in and you give them that perspective, you know, we were having, you know, to start those conversations off in the audit, we were having like philosophical discussions about compliance security and everything. And we, it was a great conversation to have with them because they understood the position where we were coming from and we contextualized it, which I think really helped that process. And us to you know, build that understanding. So it was uh, that was great. That was that was some great work we did. Um, and uh, and, I, and I think when when they complement each other that way, right, they start to solve each other's problems, right? Because nobody likes compliance for compliance's sake. Nobody exactly. likes over heavy, overly heavy handed security. But when you when they complement each other, when you have them you know, work together, they can solve it. Like compliance can help you understand why the security needs to be this. And if you don't think it needs to be this, we've got a common language that we're all talking to figure out, well, what does the security need to be and vice versa, right? The security will help you say, well, this is what the compliance 
needs to be in order for us to be secure. Now, how does that map to the standards, right? And then and you've got the you've got all the mappings done already. So you can say, oh, well, this helps us with control A from standard one, control B from standard two, right? And boom, we're good to go. But they they help solve each other's problems, I think, when when we use them together instead of fighting, have them fighting each other. Right, right. As as competing elements of really what should be an integrated program of you know, really risk-based approaches to, to controls. Which makes it easy for people to jump on board. Everybody wants to help solve business problems, right? That's, what, that's why we're at these jobs in these positions. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think, and, you know, to your point, if you contextualize it in the, in the perspective of business and either a risk or opportunity in some cases, that allows you then to, to build that, uh, I like to say communication channel, because there's, again, there's this another, another adage of you know communicating to business persons from a technical perspective is is bound for failure and we need to create these communication channels and be very clear on what we're trying to state and you know don't use technical jargon god forbid there's an acronym that we use that no one understands and things of that nature and i think we're i see we're moving past that because you know again through at least my career in the past 15 years there's um there was a complete misunderstanding of what technology was providing in terms of value to an organization to today, if you're not embracing that, uh, that's a huge problem uh, because, you know, technology is obviously a, a false multiplier when you think of business objectives and generating value and things of that nature. So, right. yeah, good stuff. So one of the other things that um, I, I'm thinking from a governance perspective, I, let's contextualize this is, um, We've got data. We're generating data across all of these products, obviously underlying infrastructure, cloud-based infrastructure. There's metadata, there's data about what we're doing, access controls, all of these different types of things. So what insight are we gathering now from cybersecurity from that data perspective that helps us make risk-based decisions in terms of mitigation, applying control, and then getting us to uh, an integrated compliance program. Are there, is it too much data today? Is it we're looking at the wrong data? We've got not, not got enough people looking at that data? Or does it go to, let's, you know, let's throw some machine learning at it and, you know, that's going to solve all of our problems, which <laughs> some problems, not all problems, in my perspective. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. So I think that I don't think we have too much because um, and the reason and, and this is probably selfish. Um, but, you know, for years we would argue in risk management that we didn't have enough information. We can't assess the risk of that because we don't have enough information. And so now that we have so much information for a variety of reasons, right, some of it is because people have embraced this agile DevOps mindset and there's open and more transparent. They're open source projects. Um, things like that. People are trying to promote them for professional development reasons. People are publishing their own independent research um, and commentary, what, whatever the case may be. Um, I don't think we can say we have too much data. I and mean, for years we were, you know, starving and going without data um, due to a ver various reasons, um, but mostly security by obscurity. People thought they shared the data. They were exposing themselves to a breach, which right. never really made any sense. <laughs> um, so I think we have a great amount of data. I think um, the issue is figuring out what data is relevant to you and where can you find it, right? So I think like open source intelligence data and all these tools to do free tools to go gather that yourself. Um, Shodan, like it's great that we have all this data. If you want to figure out what your exposure is for some 
internet facing service, you can go get a population of <laughs> IP addresses <laughs> that have their service exposed on the internet using Shodan or some other OSINT tool. Um, if you want to get an idea of how your organization compares to similar organizations for certain risks or incidents um, or security measures, you can go to look up the various community database that they use for the Verizon data breach and uh, incident report. Um, you've got the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse tracking, you know, data breaches going back almost a decade now, I think. Um, so there's a ton of information out there. You've got GitHub publishing you you know they're making data available for the security of their repos right and you've got academics publishing research papers about that right that's all out there and available so I, I i think you just have to figure out what data is relevant to you that you need um and then with these cloud services right i mean they've got apis you can tap into you've got cloud trail they've all got some sort of logging mechanism that is easier to maintain than the logging tools for on-prem systems that give you sure. You can you can get billions of events, right? And they've got tools to help you parse that. Um, like you know, another example is I was listening to a Enterprise Security Weekly podcast before you know before I I, I joined this meeting, and they had a guy on there, um, talking about the 2021 Security Operations Survey that he launched, um, where he went and gathered you know SecOps information from a bunch of practitioners around the world. And he exposed the data analytics, you know, the Jupyter notebook. He used to do data analytics on everything he gathered from the survey results. And he just published it as part of the survey results. Like, that never happens. <laughs> right. You know, it's like you you can go slice that data yourself. He's got, exactly. you know, this great population of people he surveyed for security operations. If you want to benchmark your security operations program, he's giving you the data to ask all the questions that you could need to be have, get data relevant, information relevant to your program. Sure. Um, so this is this is a great time, I think, to get access to use the security data that's publicly available for free yep. to so many of us. Um, definitely, definitely. So in that space, uh, Mosi, do you think then, you know, one of the things I've been seeing, or at least I'm going to reflect on, is that there is a data analytical skill set now needed in the cybersecurity space in order to make effective use of the telemetry that we've been, you know, that we're gathering, that we now have access to. Do you believe that's true? Is, you know, are we seeing a new requirement here of, um, you know, data science SQL, being able to ingest, manage, and create, um, you know, we'll, we'll maybe call it a big data problem at this point. Is, um, does that reflect with you? I, I do think we have that, um, but I don't think it's something that we can't manage with the existing professionals. Um, and I think the data science professionals are growing and are more than happy to work on this this problem in conjunction with security. Um, and so I guess to explain that a little bit, like you're the one that actually turned me on to quantitative risk, right? Like you told me about Doug Hubbard's book, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. And I talked to my CISO about it and he was like, oh, yeah, I heard, I heard good things about this book too. So then we just said, well, let's do it. And that book completely changed the way I looked at compliance and how we were how we were planning and managing compliance, right? Yep. In my job. Yep. So quantitative risk analysis, and then that got me into you know learning more about Fair, um, mm -hmm. and then uh, so I attended FairCon this year, and the best presentation I saw was by the senior risk engineer, security risk engineer at Netflix, Tony Martin Vagie. Nice. And and his and his point of his presentation was, 
you need to start getting rid of your risk register. Like you need to move away from your risk register into a decision register. And his point was like, as we start to shift, try to shift security left, right, to keep pace with DevOps, sure. we need to shift risk management left. He's like, because our risk register is only capturing the risk of decisions that have already been made. But when we're quantifying risk, right, yep. we are trying to be an input to the decision process. And so you need to move your risk analysis into decision analysis so yep. that when before the decision is made, you're being involved at that fork in the road yep. to figure out which way management should go. So start applying your decision analysis there. And like when you get into decision science that Doug Hubbard talks about in the book you recommended to me, um, yep. security professionals can learn that. Right. And in some ways, some of us have already been doing it. Right. Some of us are naturally good at it due to our jobs, yep. which is why we got into the field in the first place. We just didn't know that there was a whole scientific method <laughs> to what we were doing by dumb luck or happenstance. Right. So I, I think that I think that's part of it. Right. Doug Hubbard and there's training available from Doug Hubbard's group from the FAIR Institute, they can teach you decision analysis and some, some basic decision science tools. Now, when you start to imagine, you know, gather these big lakes of data, right, then yeah, you're gonna need a data science professional to help you with that. Um, oh. But because there are, you know, because security is such a big problem, and to be fair, it, it's a cool problem, right? Like, I haven't run into a data science professional yet that was like, mm, nah, security is boring. It doesn't really interest me. <laughs> right? Like they, I, they all want to, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that's something we were trying to solve. I would love to help with that. Yep. More often than not, that's the response that I've run into when I talk to data science people. Um, nice. And it actually, well, you know, like I think they say officially 2017, data became the most valuable resource in the world. Yep. And if we're talking about tying security into value, security job is to protect value. And I say it's also to create value where you need to be where the value is. And if the value is with the data, then it makes it natural sense for security and data science professionals to align on that. Definitely. Oh, again, couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, from the references that you provided there, uh, I think we've got a lot of um, really good, steadfast, proven capability in this space as you say, to shift left, especially, and it's the, uh, I think the the process of security and risk basically following each other left makes a huge amount of, you know, that's a great process to implement because if you do one without the other, you're kind of in the same compliant security problem. You know, it's your, your one's catching up and one is, you know, just way too far in the timeline behind in order to influence any real positive value change or creation in the future, right? That's, You've already, right. it's past. So I that's think right. that's, that's fantastic. What insight. See, this is, this is why hey. Mosi's the best. This is why All Mosi's credit is due to you, man. Like when I showed my CISO the loss exceedance curve that you taught me how to do yeah. from what you learned in that book, and we started pulling out insights, he was like, this is the kind of information I need from you. Because he was just working on his roadmap for the next fiscal year. And so when we right. started showing him, like, these are the risks that are unacceptable, he was like, yeah. oh, okay, okay, this is what my roadmap needs to address. It was a complete game changer. Exactly. Like, exactly. And he even led to the IT team saying, hey, if um if our solutions are managing this much risk, seems like we might be underpaid. And so like, he even changed compensation <laughs> discussions. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does put you in a different, um, and I think the, the way you, uh, you, the way you put it is your perspective changes when you think about it in, in the way that's kind of articulated in the book. 
it's a decision process, a decision um, a decision problem in some cases. And they, these are the tools to solve that problem. It just happens to be in, in this risk space that allows you then the inference to, uh, to make some uh, really interesting insights. And I think to your point, it, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can find. Um, and then, you know, FAIR builds upon those same principles. I think there's, you know, some great um, work uh, by Jack Freud and others in that space that, um, that we really, uh, I think, gets us to the point of, you know, it seems like we're using, and again, I want to be respectful, but some of the older techniques seem a little bit more archaic when you look at this and think, wow, there's, I can see the value in this. What we were doing before was, well, that's what I was taught 20 years ago, 10 years ago. This is how we did things. And and to bring that and modernize it, similar to, you know, um, software engineering, going from waterfall to agile. And, th and that's not an overnight process either. I mean, there are, you know, some learnings. There are some bumps in the road. There's some, um, some kind of cool math that you have to go through in order to get to the quantitative state. But it's... Uh, the journey is well worth it, and to, once you get to the end point, and you're able to ingest that type of data, I think its uh, its value becomes apparent, right? You start to see and align to those processes. That's fantastic. Absolutely great, awesome. All right, so now, so we've gone through um, really thinking about the biggest issues we have: compliance versus security. We've got now data. We've introduced risk. So. Putting all that together and putting that into an information security program, what do you think is the critical elements to success in that space to, one, fulfill a requirement, to fulfill the business objective, to produce value, understand risk from a decision basis, and, and move those programs forward with an element of what I'll call continuous improvement? Okay, so... I thought about, you know, I, I've been thinking about how I would answer this question. And um, yeah. I think I'm going to go left field. So it may not be helpful to some of the listeners at first. Okay. <laughs> um, like, it's not going to be a checklist of you've got to have these controls. I don't think I'm going to go that route. So I'm going to go more high level. Um, okay. So, you know, I think of I tend to think of things in people, process and technology, those pillars. Right. Okay. Yep. And so from a people standpoint, I think you've got to have, you know, humble, hungry, smart people, right? I think I'm a big Netflix fan because um, they do so many innovative things from a organizational management and security standpoint. Um, and so I think you've got to have, you know, those people, they need to have a high level of skill and competency. Um, and if they don't have it, you need to training, train them to provide it to them. Because um, I think ta high talent density is important because... When you're around, when like everyone you work with is someone you feel you can learn and respect, someone you feel you can respect and learn from. Sorry, um, I think it's when you talk about force multiplier, it just exponentially increases the capabilities of the security team um, sure. beyond what you think you could imagine. So what used to be limitations, those limitations go away, um, and right. then the capabilities become so strong that you can't even see. You don't even think of limitations anymore. You think of, well, what can't we do, right? It starts to shift that, that dramatically. Um, so like at, at Better Cloud, when we started to increase the talent density, um, so my first year at Better Cloud, I got Better Cloud of the year. My second year at Better Cloud, the security architect who predated me, he got Better Clouder of the year um, because he 
had an incredible year, right? And then last year, um, the security operations engineer got better clatter of the year, right? And so it's just like this, <laughs> it keeps feeding itself, right? So yeah. Yeah. I, I think talent density is important. Um, on the process side, I think quantitative risk analysis is foundational. You have to have that. Um, if you have any hope of being successful with some sense of efficiency, right? Because you can burn, security burnout is a real thing. And so you need some way to identify what are the problems that matter the most. And I think quantitative risk analysis is a great way to do that in a way that everyone can understand. Um, and then we've talked about the other benefits of that, you know, a couple seconds ago. Sure. Um, but the, the other thing you need in the process side is you've got to have, you've got to have a positive security culture with great ethics and behaviors that are reinforced by it. Right. And, and hopefully those that culture, those ethics and behaviors are built around transparency, um, because sure. I think security by obscurity is too big of an issue um, within our organizations, within our industry. Right. Within our profession, it's too big of an issue. Like we're in an era now where right, we've got, you know, information sharing and analysis centers and there are still roadblocks of what people share for you know cultural reasons. Like we need to get over those hurdles. And we have these issues with these the audit reports that we talked about earlier. Why am I, why do we require customers to sign an NDA before we share something with them that we hope to build trust? Right? Like let's, we need, we need more transparency. And I think we need um, a culture that reinforces that. And you know, another great website I came across last month is honest.security. So it was started by the founder of an endpoint security company. And he's just talking about how do you build in a transparent endpoint security management program? Right? And so instead of you forcing endpoint security controls onto the user's endpoint that you know they use for personal, per, you know, for personal reasons as well as you know professional reasons. Sure. Be transparent with them about hey, this is what we think needs to be in place from a security standpoint on this endpoint, and let them right. choose. Like inform them and let them make an informed decision. So I think like we need to start having more bottom-up security if we're really going to tackle this problem because it's not yeah. going to scale the top-down way we've been doing it. As as we we see this over and over again, right? Every incident right. shows us why it's not going to work. Um, one technical thing for process, we need asset management, like CIS, <laughs> top 20 controls show you like it's foundational right? you got to have asset yeah. management because you can't protect it if you don't know it exists, um, especially in the era of cloud with all these ephemeral assets spinning up, spinning down. And with it so easy to provision an asset, you have to have some asset management process in place that you can trust. Yeah. And, and then on the technology front, I think the most critical thing is you have to have the ability to enumerate and evaluate those assets. So you've got to have you're not going to be able to do it manually because, again, humans aren't going to keep up with machines. And we're talking about machines spinning up assets nowadays right. um, and, and spinning out data. Um, so you're going to need technology to help you with that. And you're going to need a way to evaluate those assets to determine whether or not are these assets meeting our security requirements and helping us achieve our business objectives? And you need to mm -hmm. be able to do that in a continuous way like we talked about. Sure. Um, sure. As I, I, think, I think those are the critical things that I would think of for a security program. Nice, nice. Now, if I could just extend it a little bit into that space, with um, organizations either starting out in, this, in building information security into their culture, um, I think that's a big piece of it as well, is what kind of time frame do you think makes sense to start putting in these these small increments of building that program? Because I don't think there's a capability of saying, okay, you know, March 1st yesterday, that's when the security's in play, 
and it's just going to continue and it's going to work. That, that's unrealistic. Right. But how long do you think it takes to build to the level that you would say, this is a mature, this is a well-informed, and in, in some cases, well-resourced capability? And, you know, resources can be from both the technology infrastructure, the personnel, things of that nature. How long does that take? And again, obviously, this contextualized for the size of the organization and things of that nature. Right. That is a great question. Um, Oh, how long does that take? I think the first part about it is it depends on how long it takes you to get good people in place. Like if, right. if you don't have good people, Very that true. comes first. Um, so yep. like the talent density is a big part of that. Um, yep. Like the, you know, Reed, um, the CEO of Netflix, does a great job of illustrating that in, in his book, No Rules Rules. How like, you know, we couldn't really have a culture change without the talent density in place first. Because once you have talent density, that's going to affect your culture. Right. When sure. you have less talent, you're, you're probably going to tend to have more rules and process in place to make up for the lack of talent you have so that right. you can try to keep people within bounds of acceptable, you know, errors of margin, you know, margin of error. Right. Um, but when you have more talent, you're going to have more trust and you're going to trust those people to make mistakes. Um, so I, that, that, that has to come first. But once you have that in place, um, I think you can do it. I, I think it. I don't think it. I don't think it should be a boil the ocean exercise. I think we should stick with the things we talked about before. Like do it in an agile and iterative way. Um, yep. And so pick again. Use your quantitative risk analysis and what's the what's the business process that we are most concerned about or that we would get the most value from um, improving the culture of right. Like wh where is our biggest people people risk? Our biggest security awareness risk, and and just start start with some process in that area, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a business unit, if it's a sub process, start with there and see how it works, and then you know flesh it out iteratively. So maybe it's you're gonna try it. You know, my wife used to tell me when I met her that um, it takes three weeks to to break a habit. So you know, maybe you you let it play out for two to three sprints, right? Yeah. Um, depending on how long your sprints are, and if it works, cool. Let's let's roll it out to another process and, and maybe you just do it that way Italy over time. But I don't think it has to be something where you have to say HR is going to come out with this great big roadmap and you're going to try it and do it in one or two fiscal years. or It's going to be part of a five year plan. I think you can break it down into smaller bite sized chunks. Gotcha. And now, then hopefully it becomes self-propagating. Right. Exactly. <laughs> hopefully it catches on. Yeah, I think the. Um the underlying adage, you know, I've, I've looked at um, obviously implementing security programs, we've done it together, um, is it you can implement policy and you can be aspirational in the policy and say, yeah, we're, we're going to work towards fulfilling that policy. And again, I don't like to uh, manage security from a policy perspective. It should be, you know, integrated as, as part of what we're doing in the generation of business process. Um, but sometimes you have to kind of start aspirational and then say, I'm going to work that into the processes um, that exist, uh, you know, within the business. I think also, and I love the point of, you know, applying the agility for continuous improvement, because in a lot of cases, um, and just thinking about the question I asked is, um, you know, it, you're never done. You're, you're always going to be implementing security at some point. There's, you know, there's technological changes. There's, you've just done a whole new revenue stream or whatever it happens to be. Um, or your organization decides to work in DevOps or DevSecOps. That's a whole different perspective. And, okay, 
Now we need to react to that. But I think communication, and you mentioned transparency, I think that's within the ecosystem, you know, vendors, third-party risk management, absolutely. But also within the organization is that what you have to do is be transparent. This is our strategic plan moving forward. You need to think about security when that occurs because that's going to implement change across really across uh, a lot of the organization, a lot of the perspective of understanding then the risk, you know, have we increased our threat surface in terms of, you know, uh, what the services or product that we're providing, um, you know. So I think that has um, some relevancy, at least to how the program gets implemented over time. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, it's me and my ISO hat, right? ISO tells you, right? It's the first clause in ISO is, you know, understanding the context, right? What is it you're trying to protect and why? And then the right. second clause is, establish a vision for how it should be protected, right? And that's where your policy comes in. So that's, you you have to start there. Um, And then I think from there, like implementing the culture thing, um, you know, like COVID provides some really good guidance on that, that I don't think they get a lot of credit for. Um, They they have a whole component on culture and ethics and behaviors and some best practice recommendations of what you, what you can do to apply some principles in your organization from a culture standpoint. And, And then they say like, you know, you've got a highly functioning culture when, the the end users or the stakeholders are bringing security recommendations and improvements to security instead of the other way around. <laughs> like at right. that point, to right. your point, like you're never done because there are always going to be things changing in business that they're going to bring to you. But when they start leading instead of following, then you know you've got your culture to a really, really good place. Exactly. Exactly. I feel that some in some cases as well with risk as well. It's in some cases as you're trying to go through and, you know, build these types of decisions and look for, you know, doing gap analysis and look at uh, criticality analysis of particular systems, look at the impact and what could be the problems and, and, and thinking about the risk is to the same point when risk is being brought, you know, from that perspective, from a cybersecurity perspective to you, this is something we need to deal with. This is, um, you know, and you get those, I guess I call them champions in, in business units who are bringing it forward. Um, but in some cases, I like to call them visionaries, because if it's the first time that any group has been doing that to you, it's like, you know, was was that my influence? Because I'll take full credit for the fact that you've got the vision to come and talk to me about this. Or is it just you've seen an issue, you know, it has an underlying uh, impact and, and likelihood and let's review that in terms of these processes together. And you want a awareness brought to it before it becomes, you know, an underlying actualizes itself in, in the in the uh, in the business or uh, right. in the process. So those yeah, are, those are those are my favorite coworkers, and those people need to be rewarded. Yes, um, yes absolutely, absolutely, no question, no question. Okay, so instead of no question, I'm going to ask you a question. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so now. Um, kind of as we're, we're, we're getting to the end here, uh, I wanted to ask, and again, um, your career, your experience, if you could go back 10 years and give yourself advice in terms of this space, your career, the way to move forward, risk, things of this nature, what would be the advice you would give yourself uh, 10 years ago? This was um, hmm, this is an interesting question. Um... I think what I would do is I would I would tell myself, uh, know your worth and interview regularly. Like I nice. to me, the two worst things in 
our first world human experience is looking for a job, looking for a place to live. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> those things are that's hierarchy in there, sure. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and so I didn't, and and I, I I I didn't do a good job of regularly interviewing um, to just get feedback on you know for professional development, like what skills are people looking for? You know, what's my market value? And I did a terrible job managing my compensation um, for the first half of my career, probably longer than the first half of my career. Now I was lucky that um, when I time I realized I was doing a bad job managing my compensation, um, when I went to talk to the owner of the company about it, because it was a small firm, so I could talk to the owner. Um, hmm. he, he understood and he instituted a process to uh, like a make good to give me, you know, back wages or, you know, back pay for, you know, the times I was underpaid. And I know most people that's not going to be possible or most companies won't, won't do that. So I got lucky um, in a way. But I, that's what I would tell myself is know your worth and hmm. and regularly go out and check that worth on the market by interviewing regularly. Um, so now I'm trying to get to a point now where I like calling on job interviews, um, even if it's not about trying to find the next opportunity, even if it's just talk to people about interesting problems, right? Things they're looking for in their organization is something you can get out of it. And it, it's all now I can just consider it part of professional development. But it was a lesson I learned way too late. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's, it's a skill unto itself, you know, the interview and things of that nature. And it's, like you say, in some cases, it's, uh, I like to liken it to a test, you know, how, how good am I? Have I positioned myself in a, you know, in a way that one, I can communicate effectively, I can sell myself. I know their underlying problem because I've gone and done research and, and built that idea in my head of uh, what that should be. Um, so no, I, I absolutely get that. I'm glad you didn't say you could go back in 10 years and say, get out of the security industry altogether. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Cause we need you. We need you. And, uh, so that's fantastic. That's great. Um, so now what I like to do to conclude um, my uh, the podcast that I host, I have nine questions. And these okay. are um, based on the James Lipton acting, acting studio, or the actor studio, apologies. Um, set of questions are obviously contextualized for us. So I'll do my, uh, I'll get my, uh, I have these ready for you. Ah. My, my little stack of index questions, okay. index cards, uh, similar to James. I think his were blue, but um, not a problem. So let's start. So what is your favorite CIS control? Ooh, uh, so hmm. uh, if huh. I go back and forth, depending on what's happened when I get asked the question. So. Since it's been a while since the solar winds incident, I'm gonna I'm not gonna say what my solar winds influence answer would be. So I'm gonna say uh, Control 17, Security Awareness and Training, because I I really think security needs to be more bottom up, and the only way we're gonna get there is by educating the users um, sure. and the stakeholders. Uh, and the more educated they are, the more they can we can have security closer to where the work happens. Um, okay. And and then we don't have to have these conversations about you know. 3 million short uh, shortage of 3 million security professionals compared to the job openings and, and things like that, because security is now embedded in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. Nice. What is the least favorite part of your profession? My least favorite is something we talked about earlier. It's compliance without risk. Um, it drives, it drives me mad, whether it's from 
internal stakeholders saying that, well, we need to just do this for the audit, or if it's an auditor saying, well, this is the finding because even though there's no risk associated with it, the audit one probably drives me craziest the most. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's my compliance without risk drives me nuts. Uh, compliance without risk. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> uh, why do you like cybersecurity? So it's funny, like when you said, uh, hope you're glad my, I didn't go back and tell myself 10 years ago to get out of security. The reason why I, I, I would never tell myself that because I, I feel like it's the only uh, profession in technology that creates and protects value. I don't know that any other profession can claim that, that it does both. Um, yeah. But I think security can absolutely claim to do that. Fantastic. Wow, that's cool. Um, what don't you like about cybersecurity? Oh, uh, you know, I'm um, I'm a recovering cynic um, <laughs> and a recovering pessimist. So um, I have a long list. So if I had to pick something at the top of the list, um, I think it would probably be the um, there's this default thing in security, right, where we there's this stigma associated with the other, right? It's authorized users and unauthorized users. It's good guys and bad guys. Um, sure. And I so I think it makes it exposes us to like nationalist and racist security practices that we don't realize um, just yeah. because we're most susceptible to it. So like, I mean, I've had debates with people about um, like, so for, like, for example, right? Like, why are we blocking IP blocks for entire countries? Just because mm -hmm there's a sanction placed on the by the US government. Like I understand, I understand it from a compliance standpoint, but then there are some people who don't have that compliance issue and they're applying those IP blocks because, well, the US government says they're bad. Well, <laughs> okay, but you also claim to be a global company, right? Like it, it, always, it always comes up to me with companies that do business in China and yet they have racist views or nationalist views on China. But how this this is you have you have a business partner in China, and so why are we talking about these different security practices just because of those nationalist views, not because of the business that you're doing there? Like so, it's I think that's that's a big problem, yeah, in, in, in our profession. Yeah, yeah, I think in in some cases, just to comment on that, we, there's these uh, just making swaths of decisions that are you know kind of all encompassing that may have. You know, certain consequences that, like you say, I mean, it's hard to do business globally if you only communicate um, with a few IP addresses. It doesn't make sense. Right, right. And yeah, and then we worry about balkanization of the Internet, but yet we promote it into our security practices. Like, it, it mm. doesn't make sense. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, sorry, uh, what source of data, log, or telemetry do you love? I mentioned this earlier. Um and so I'm going to repeat it here. It's uh, the Veris Community Database. I love going into the Veris Community Database and pulling out data so that I can use for quantitative risk analysis. Like if I don't have my own internal set for a certain risk, just going and see, you know, I got it into a spreadsheet. I really need to get into some sort of cloud service um, because my spreadsheet crashes or freezes all the time. Um, and it's not very collaborative. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's a huge amount of data that you can slice up any way you need to for uh, a high level risk and see how certain other organizations in your industry or across all industries, how they handled it. Um, so it's a it's a tremendous amount of data for risk analysis, in my opinion. Fantastic. Fantastic. What is the biggest waste of time in cybersecurity? I really 
if I, if I can only pick one, I would say security by obscurity because it just creates so much friction for so little value. Um, okay. And so, like, it, it's amazing to me how many organizations believe that you have to have an NDA for your SOC 2. When mm. you ask the AICPA, they say, well, that's the organization's call. Well, somebody at some point, somebody got these two things conflated. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So. So, you know, uh, th- th- we just have we have to stop that. And um, we need to be we need to use, you know, like the ISACs. They need to be used more. We need more information in the ISACs. We need more information in the various community database. Right. Like the more we because the, the, the less we stigmatize people for going through a breach and more we encourage people to share information or experiences from a breach, the better off we can prepare for the next one. Right. Sure. And, and even if even if we can't prevent it, we'll be able to correct it faster. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. Nice. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Author. Awesome. Um, yeah. Um, I have a bunch of story ideas. I was a big comic book fan growing up. I'm starting to get back into it now. Um, and so I have a bunch of ideas that I jot out in like little short stub notes. Um, I used to draw too, but I've kind of given up of being good at drawing. Um, whenever I try it now, it's, it doesn't turn out well, but I think the writing, I have a better shot. Oh, no. All right. So comic books, Marvel or DC? So I grew <laughs> up as a Marvel comic book reader. Yeah. Um, pre- predominantly. I was introduced via DC. Then when I bought my own, I would buy Marvel. But I'm not a Marvel purist. I think DC gets a bad rap for when it comes to the movies and the TV shows. Like, I think DC has better TV shows than Marvel. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Controversial, but interesting. It is. And I have to give the disclaimer. I have not seen WandaVision yet. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's what I hear. So (laughs) that caveat aside. (laughs) Okay. We'll have to have you back to go through and we'll have to have this. We'll have to have that question again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, see, I don't like Disney Plus controlling how I view my content, so I wait till all the episodes come out, and then I binge them as a schedule. I want to watch them, so I think this week is the last week for WandaVision, so I'll be watching it next week. Nice, nice. What profession would you not like to do? Uh, this is simple. Um, so when I went to the I went to the New Jersey IT centers, that's how I got into IT. Mm. And you could be a you could go a web design track, or you could go a network administration track. I went in no part of web design. So like UI, UX, it's too many decisions. I would never get anything done. It would be complete paralysis by analysis for me. Um, like I had a conversation with a UI architect once at Better Cloud, and like they were talking about like font kerning. I was like, oh my goodness, you have got to be kidding me. Like, and it was, he was talking to like a technical writer for like 30 minutes. I was like, that's, there's too many decisions. <laughs> I would never, I would never get anything done. And he just yep. loved it. <laughs> Interesting. That's awesome. Okay. So the final question is when you reach the end of your career, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, I think I would say uh, continuously trustworthy. Um, Like if I, I would love to be able to architect and this continuous trust solution so that organizations can provide their stakeholders trust on a continuous basis without in between these point in time, audits um and even if we and if we can even get that independent continuous trust like continuous assurance that that's Mm -hmm. even better but if not hopefully an organization can build up its own trust relationship where 
you don't have to ask for a bridge letter, right? Or mm-hmm. you don't have to ask me a questionnaire because I have to give credit to the CEO from Apple, um, Chas Ballou. He said um, on a webinar this year, he said, in an ideal world, a vendor could tell a customer, have your vendor management API talk to my customer trust API, and we're done. <laughs> I think that's yeah. where we that's where we need to move towards. Definitely. Wow. That's awesome. Mosi, that concludes our podcast today. Thank you so much. It was great getting to hang out again and, and walk through some of these areas. Uh, we'll have you back. Definitely. This was great. Um, any last words for the audience? Uh, I, I want to give a shout out to your coworker, Stephanie. Um, I loved okay. working with her, you know, yep. after you after you brought her on board, it was great. So Stephanie was fantastic. So uh, I want to give her a shout out. And she says hi, by the way. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Mosi. I really appreciate it. Great work and keep doing what you do. And to our audience, thank you for uh, tuning in. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you again on another podcast. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.